Hello again. Would you stand with me as we go to the text this morning? We are finishing out Ruth today. So we'll be in that last section starting in verse 13 of chapter 4, 13 through 21. Let's start with our prayer of uh, recommitment, uh, getting our hearts ready to go out of Deuteronomy 6, called the Shema. Say it with me, or say it after me, I should say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. These are the very words of God. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, father of Hezron. Hezron, father of Ram. Ram, father of Amminadad. Amminadad, father of Nishan. Nishan, father of Solomon. Solomon, father of Boaz. Boaz, father of Obed. Obed, father of Jesse. And of course, Jesse, the father of King David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I said, today we finish out this fascinating little book. And in many ways, uh, this message will serve uh, sort of as a recap of everything that we've talked about before. So if you've missed a week or two in that, this will really serve as kind of recapping the whole of what we've been talking about. Because in this very last section of the story, there's this mini genealogy that shows the result of Ruth and Boaz's union. It says, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obab fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And of course, David ushers in a new era in the Israel's history. It's the king, uh, kingship era, unifying the nation and the prototype for all kings to go uh, after him. So David really represents uh, this, this, not just him himself, but an era in which Israel serves now under this king, and David himself serves as the prototype for kings to come in the future. And so what we have at the beginning of the book, though, we are told of a new era. We're told of an era that Ruth was in. It says in the very first line in chapter one, if you can remember, the whole book starts off by telling us that this was in the era of the judges. This whole story takes place in the era of the judges. And then at the end of the book, we're told that the story really serves to usher in the era of the king. So we start this story in the era of the judge, and we end ushering in the era of the king. Now what we find here, what that is, is actually a literary device called an inclusio. And an inclusio is when a communicator brackets similar material at the beginning 
and at the end in order to alert the reader that this is going to be a major theme of the book. And then what happens is that that in the in-between, the stuff in the middle of that bracket serves to commentate on this major theme. And so you'll start at the beginning with a theme, something about an era, starting with era, then you'll conclude with the same theme. And as a reader, you're supposed to go, ah, there it is. That's, That's what this is about. And then in the middle, serves to commentate on what's going on in the in-between. Biblical authors use this principle all the time, as do writers, speakers, and even once in a while, a pastor will do it. I'll start a sermon and I'll tell you a story, which will serve to make a greater point. And then I'll summarize the point with one succinct line. I'll say something like this. The book of Ruth reminds us that in the days of the judges, a king is coming, right? Yeah, yeah. They say in the business, that'll preach right there. That'll preach right there. What I did is I set up the first part of the bracket and then you should expect that later on at the end, that line will come back into play. It's an occlusia and then everything in the middle serves to commentate that idea. So let's take a look here at how the author is using this inclusio to make his bigger point. Again, it says, in the days of the judges, Ruth 1, 1. Now there's no throwaway lines in the Bible. The author doesn't have some sort of word quota and needs to just fill up space like we do when we're writing a term paper. And so every line is intentional. Every word is intentional. The author is trying to draw you in to the story. It's easy to gloss over this first clause and get to the good stuff, but that's when we miss the good stuff because this story is in the time of the judges. And this is specifically referencing the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth. It's this whole violent, chaotic cycle in Israel's history. And early in Judges, it actually gives us a synopsis of that time period. In Judges 2, uh, in 11, and then in 16 through 19, it says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the beginning of this book. It's explaining how this whole book of Judges is going to go down. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked and had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and did not do do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by the pity, by their groaning, because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. And so you get this chaotic, violent cycle in which the people turn their backs on God, an oppressor comes and and overtakes them and and really violently oppresses them, steals from them, takes for them, uses them, abuses them, and then a judge rises up. 
And the judge come and is, is with the Lord. The Lord is with the judge. The judge drives out the enemy, tries in some way, not always successful, but tries in some way to, 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 to reform the people, reform the society of Israel. But when that judge died and there was no one left to lead, the people would go right back and even worse, as the text said, to running after other gods, other ways, turning their backs on God until the next foreign oppressor came and abused them and the cycle kept going. And the cycle went around and around and around. So this was an era of massive political upheaval, a very volatile, chaotic time when you were either left to your own devices or the person in charge was overbearing, ruthless, and violent, only out to counter you, uh, to counter you and accumulate whatever wealth and power that they could take. Do what you want. So this era was really described and, and uh, uh, you could summarize by saying sort of a do what you want, take what you can get, great upheaval and tumult and turbulence. And the very, fa- and the very fabric of Israel's culture was actually being threatened because God had established a society through his law that was being constantly ignored. But it was a society of truth and generosity and kindness and commitment. It was, a, it was, but this era was not that. It was violent and chaotic when people did what they want, took what they want. In fact, the very last line, as you probably are aware of, the very last line in Judges to kind of summarize the whole era says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is how you could summarize the era of the judges. Everybody doing what they want, everyone taking what they want, doing what was right in their own eyes. And from this line, this very last line of judges, the next line in your Bible, in Ruth, reads, in the days of the judges. And so we make the connection. We say, Ruth and Boaz, and Naomi are living in these days where everyone did what they wanted. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This great upheaval, this great cycle of violence and conquest and oppression and crying out and raising a judge up and then they die and it starts all over again. This is the era, this is the season where our little book that we've been looking at for seven years falls right in the middle of, right smack in the middle of this world, we find this little four-chapter story about two people, Ruth and Boaz, who are living in the in-between between the judges and the kings. They're living in the in-between between the judges and the king. And so the book of Ruth reminds us, write this down in your fill-in, the book of Ruth reminds us that in the days of the judges, a king is coming. Then in the day when, when there, in the day and era where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, we are told a story of what two people did in the in-between when there was no king to remind us that in the days of these judges, a king is coming. And just as a side, if you're thinking, as you hear the description of the judges, of the era of the judges, if you're thinking, huh, that sounds familiar, we'll get there. 
Now, if what's in the middle of an ecclesia serves to commentate, it can be said then that the book of Ruth might then reveal to us how we are to live in the in-between. How do people who love God and follow God and serve him and want to follow his law, how, do, how does one live between the judges and the kings? What do we do in the in-between? If you're in the days of the judges awaiting the coming king, how do Boaz and Ruth show us a redemptive way to live? Because what we find is that Ruth is full of these redemptive acts. In fact, our whole sermon series has been one week after another showing you pictures and stories within the bigger story of these little redemptive acts that are going on all throughout the book, revealing to us how we are to live in the in-between, how Ruth and Boaz live for God in between the judges and the kings. So if you remember, we talked one week, we said that Ruth is a story that redeems names. If you want to write that one in, this is a recap. One Sunday we looked at Ruth is a story that redeems names. Because this whole story centers around the concept of Kingsman redemption. Kingsman redemption. A couple weeks ago we talked about this. We talked about the importance of family lines and lineages in this world. It was your livelihood and your protection and your land. Family name carried with it all the resources and networks and provisions for you and the generations after you. But if the patriarch died, the one that would carry on this name and this legacy, if the patriarch died and there was no one else to pass it on to, if there were no sons in a male-dominated culture, if there were no sons that the land and the family legacy and the resources could could pass it on to, that family was in jeopardy. That land and that resource would then just get sold off and dissipated, and that whole name of that family might disappear. This was a major issue, a major tragedy in the ancient Near East. And so God created a system, a a set of laws to protect people from this. That if the patriarch dies, if there's no one to carry on the name, then somebody from within the extended family, whether it's a brother in the immediate family or if no brothers existed, someone from within the extended family who was unmarried needed to step up, marry the widow, and then once they have children, at least that first son wasn't actually going to be their son. It was going to be the son that would carry on the name of the dead brother. And so God builds into his law this, this way of protecting families, way of protecting lands, way of making sure people don't get too high or get, don't get too low, but, but, the, but redemption is built in. And it really took a sacrifice from the one who would marry because in some ways what happened then is your name was diminished so that you could raise up the name of your brother. When you took on the brother's uh, uh, widow, you actually had to sort of uh, make yourself lower, make your name lower. Your first son isn't even really yours, spiritually speaking. Biologically, yes, but spiritually speaking and culturally speaking, it's not that your lands and your, 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 uh, your provisions and your family even was divided so that you could give back to your brother what it had lost in his death. So it actually required you to bring your name lower in order to raise up the name of the brother. 
And this was formalized, God, I mentioned this was formalized in God's law in Deuteronomy 25. We've actually read this passage quite a number of times throughout this series. And the reason is, is really Deuteronomy 25 serves as the reference for the entire, cha- for the entire uh, book of Ruth. This chapter in Deuteronomy 25 serves really as the, as the reference point for everything. And so when we looked at it, we read, if a brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her. And if there was no husband at the time, then an extended family member to fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. And this is exactly what we see happening in Ruth. Abimelech, the the patriarch, dies. He has two sons that would naturally, all of that provision and land and resources would go to, but then they die. And now there's no one left to carry on the name. Naomi, the widow, is the last one. And these two widowers of the sons. And instead of going back to Moab, instead of just returning to her family, Ruth decides to, uh, instead of remarrying outside the family, she decides to honor the God of her in-laws and return with Naomi to Bethlehem to see if she can't find a kinsman redeemer inside the family who would remarry her and carry on the name of her dead husband. It was a great act of kindness. It was a great act of lowering yourself in order to raise up the name of someone else. Literally, Ruth loses her name, her land, her culture, her people for the name of another. She redeems somebody else's name at the expense of her own. In fact, listen to her famous speech in Ruth 1, and it's the one we say a lot at weddings. We we read it at our wedding. Again, when you think of a wedding, most of the time, one person loses their name, quite literally, in order to perpetuate the name of another. I was just uh, uh, over Thanksgiving a few days ago. We went to Vermont. We go to Vermont every year. That's where my wife's family's from. And if you think of a Vermont Thanksgiving, if you, if you think of just quintessential Vermont, they hit every single, like, there's maple syrup. You drive up a mountain. There's snow. I mean, it's like everything you can think of. And all of her family all lives up on the hill. It's the Carr family. That's her, that's her maiden name. The Carr family. And we go up and we visit the Carr family. Molly comes from a wonderful spiritual heritage of the Carr clan up on the hill that they own. Uh, literally over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. That is quite literally what happens when we go. Molly comes from an amazing generational line. And yet when she married me, she got the long name instead. <laughs> but what she did, and what m- many of you have done, is she lost her name to perpetuate the name of another. Right? And that's the whole point. That's the beauty of Ruth. That's the beauty of what she's doing. That's the beauty of a marriage ceremony in general, is that one person is willing to lose their name and their legacy and their family to perpetuate the name and legacy of another. And so what we find here is this beautiful, wonderful act of kindness. Beautiful wonder act of it. And Boaz actually says this. Uh, as he's giving him a speech, he says that this is a great act. In the Hebrew, it's chesed, 
which means a, a, a kind of sacrificial kindness. He says, this kindness is greater. This is in chapter three. This kindness is greater than that which you've shown earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich and poor. You might have been able to get someone else, and yet you have decided you are going to perpetuate this name. And so you've come to me because I'm one in line with the family. I'm someone that could actually redeem this name and carry the name forward. But you come to me who can redeem your dead husband's name, he says. This is why in our passage this morning, when Ruth and Boaz first have their first son, notice they place it on Naomi's lap and they don't say Ruth has had a son. They say Naomi has had a son. Right? Because while it is, Obed is biologically Ruth's child, culturally and spiritually it's Naomi's. Obed is to then carry on the name of the family. It's losing your name, losing your resources, losing something. Be willing to sacrifice your own thing to perpetuate somebody else's thing. Ruth's story and the story that Ruth is, is a story that redeems names. That redeems names. Ruth is also a story that redeems hurts. We took a look at this. Early on in, in our series, we took, the, took a look at this. Ruth is a story that redeems hurts. Because at the end of chapter one, we find a tired old woman. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Her family line is in jeopardy. She has no livelihood, no protection, forced to sell or on the brink of selling her family land. Her dead husband has fled to a foreign nation, so she missed out on God providing for his people and returns home with her tail between her legs. And it says in chapter 2 that the whole town is talking about it. She comes home hurt. In fact, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. If you've been looking at our, uh, we have a study that goes along with, we take a look at this, this speech that she gives and we see that there's echoes actually back to Exodus, the early part of Exodus in which it describes the, the Israelite people while they're in bondage in slavery in Egypt. And she uses three phrases that are the exact same phrases that are used to describe Israel's experience in bondage. So she's likening back to, I, I, I'm, I'm so bitter. God has delivered you. While I was in Moab, God has delivered you. And we take a look at that specifically and what that meant. God delivered you, but me, I've, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because I'm, I, I'm, like, I'm like you back in Egypt. I, I'm a slave. I, I'm a slave to this. I'm bitter. I'm old. And she says this one thing that stirs me. She looks at her and she goes, I went full. I went there full. But I came back empty. She says, I went there full. But I came back empty. Now here's the thing though. In her bitterness, she can't see that that's not true. She didn't come home empty. In fact, four verses, there is someone who declares their ultimate loyalty to her and comes home with her. She says, I am empty, but there's someone standing right next to her. And she's going to be the key to her redemption. But when you're hurt and you're in pain, 
and you're bitter. You don't see that someone's standing next to you. But she's there. And she will be the key to her redemption. You see, Ruth is a story that redeems pains and hurts. It's a story that redeems our hurts. Ruth is also a story that redeems our circumstances. We talked about this last week. Ruth is a story that redeems our circumstances. Now, what we know from the law, that aside from other things like this Kingsman Redeemer thing that set it up, that helped people establish good societal practices in order to, for people not to fall too far into poverty and debt and destitution, there was actually other laws built in it. One, uh, one in particular comes from Leviticus 19 and 24, and it said that when you build up your society, and this was an agricultural society, so resources were, were connected to your land, connected to uh, your crops and things like that. When you build your society, build into your laws a provision for the widows and the orphans and the refugees and the poor among you. And so one of these provisions was when you're harvesting your grain, and we're told several times in Ruth that this was right in the middle of the harvest season. While you are, while you're harvesting your grain, leave the corners of your fields intact so that those who are poor, those who are widowed, those who are in need can come behind you and pick and take and and gain what they need. In a lot of ways, the law says, be a bad farmer. Don't be thorough. Kind of cut corners, if you will, because you want to leave the edges for the widow. In fact, it was a visualization of just how generous you were. In Israel, you could walk around from field to field and say, how much of the corner did they cut? And you could actually walk by a field and go, oh, look at this family. This family is generous. Just look how bad of a farmer they were. Look how much they left behind. Or you'd go to that family and go, ugh. And they were pretty stingy this year. Look, the, the corners are pretty small over there. It, w- it was actually a visualization, a declaration to God of your generosity. It was built into this way of life, of your field, so that they can come and receive. But of course, by the time the judges ruled, by the time that everyone could do what was right in their own eyes, you can imagine this wouldn't have been enforced. But allowing Ruth to glean behind the harvesters, Moab notices, uh, or Boaz notices her situation and practices divine generosity. By allowing Ruth to come and glean behind the harvesters, he is affirming Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy. He is living in the law that God established, even though he was in an era in the judges where he didn't have to where nobody would have called him out, where nobody would have have called him to task, where everyone was doing everything that they wanted, Boaz practices divine generosity to Ruth. Now, Milo asked me to clarify, because last week he realized that in an attempt to modernize the story, which we all do as communicators, he he may have inferred that uh, Boaz was employing Ruth and that Ruth was a good employer. And after we we realized that, and he knows that, that that wasn't the case, that this wasn't an, Ruth was not an employee of Boaz. Ruth was just simply receiving from the generosity of him. So in an era when everyone was disobeying and do whatever they seemed fit, Boaz is obeying these social welfare laws, even though he didn't have to, because this is a story, Ruth is a story that redeems 
circumstances. So Ruth is a story that redeems names. And Ruth is a story that redeems hurts. And Ruth is a story that redeems circumstances. But also Ruth is a story, we talked about this, and for two weeks is a story that redeems history. This is your last one. History. Boaz's name means, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Boaz's name means a goat is in him, which comes from a series of family deception stories. So quite literally, he carries the history of his family on his back. He is named the goat and the coat, were these little nuances, these little things that people knew. They saw the theme and the rhythm of it, and then Boaz comes along, and it's a goat is in him. He's got his family history inside of him. Deception, skirting the truth, taking things that didn't belong to you. But when faced with his own goats and coats moment, Boaz redeems his past that night on the threshing floor. He redeems his past that night on the threshing floor. He could have taken, he could have deceived, he could have seen what was being offered to him and taken it. And instead, the, the, the chapter, the end of three and pretty much all of chapter four goes to great lengths to show just how above board Boaz goes in order to show that I will not be a slave to my past. I do not have to live into my family history because there was a kinsman redeemer closer to Naomi's family than him. He knew that right away. The moment when, when we talked about Ruth asked him to marry him, redeem me, marry me, make me yours. Boaz knows I'm actually not the one to do it. There's actually someone closer in the family and it's that guy's duty to do it, not mine. So if I'm to do this right now, if I'm to say yes now, I'm actually circumventing the process, I'm deceiving, and I'm taking what's not mine, and I'd be living very much into the goat that is in me, the goat of my family. And that night, he says no, and he redeems his history. Boaz could have easily circumvented the situation, instead act with great truth. But here's the thing. He doesn't just redeem his history. He redeems that guy's history or that guy's future history. I thought Pastor Milo did a good job pointing this out last week, but it bears repeating. We're going to play a little game here. Uh, It's a game I like to play when you're reading scripture and you see a seemingly random detail in the text. It's a game called, why is that there? So let's play. In chapter 4, we'll start in chapter 4 in verse 3. It says this, Then Boaz said to the guardian redeemer, that's that guy, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Amimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, the elders that are he called together, seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. Then no one has the right, because no one has the right to do it except for you, right? That's the key. No one's got the right to do it except for that guy. That's the guy's duty. He should be doing it. And I am next in line. Pretty straightforward thus far, I'd say, right? Let's keep playing. I'll redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. 
At this the gardener said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Still pretty normal, I'd say. Okay, going. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of transactions in Israel. The guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself and, redeemed, and removed his sandal. Ding, ding, ding. There it is. What's going on here? Why, why did the author seem uh, uh, compelled to have this little side note here? We're tracking along in the story. Hey, are you going to do it? Sure, I'll buy the land. Oh, it comes with, it comes with a woman. Oh, never mind then, right? Because he doesn't want to endanger his own estate. He's not willing to lose part of his name for the name of another because it will endanger his own interests and name. Everything is good, so you do it. And then we get this little side note, this little, uh, oh, oh, by the way, back in the day, they used to do this thing where you hand sandals out and it kind of formalized things. And so this guy kind of threw off his shoe and handed it to Boaz. All right, let's keep moving on in the story. And you go, wait a minute, wait, whoa. Why is that there? Well, what we know, what we know about this first is this. We know that this actually wasn't a common practice in Ruth's day. Right? Because the text tells us so. It says in earlier times in Israel, and I've read up on this, and, and most scholars agree with this, that this was not a, a thing that was practiced then. Right? It's not like it was, it, most scholars believe that it's not like the author is writing it later on and, and referring back to the day of Ruth. Most scholars say, no, 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 the author is writing it present day and saying, we used to do that stuff back then. And now, all of a sudden, this man feels compelled to do it now. So why? What is, he, what is he doing with it? The storyteller feels compelled to tell us about it, because what we're seeing is that the man is making a statement. He's doing something out of the, out of the normal. Again, we think that this would have probably been normal in Ruth's day, but it wasn't. So he's actually, the man is making a statement by doing something that they used to do, but they don't do anymore. So what is he trying to say by this gesture? Now, we mentioned earlier that Deuteronomy 25 serves as the reference chapter for Ruth and read the first part of it about redeeming the dead brother so that the name, his name might not be blotted out in Israel. But there's actually a second part to it. And we read it last week. And I thought that was a nice job to see the connection. Because in the second part of Deuteronomy 25, it gives the stipulations for what happens to the guy who refuses to do it. When there's a guy and redemption is needed and the guy says, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not going to do it, there's actually a, a consequence for it. So what do we see here? And again, we read this last week, but it, it bears repeating. This is the second part of Deuteronomy 25. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate my, his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. 
and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of the sandalous, which I love. The house of the sandalous. So here in Ruth, the same scene is set. This man is confronted. He goes before the elders and is called upon to do his duty, his responsibility to redeem the name of his family. And because of his own estate, because of his own interests, because of his unwilling to lose a part of his name for the sake of another name, well, he's guilty. He's unwilling to do it. And so he takes off his sandal. Now, we don't know this for sure. So I want to be clear here. I'm not saying this is exactly why. We don't know for sure here, but this is what I think he's saying with this gesture. Because again, this is not normal back in Ruth's day. He's making a statement by doing this. So what is he saying? This is what I think he's saying. I deserve to lose this. I deserve to be spat in the face. I deserve to be known as the sandalous one. But would you take it instead? I don't know that for sure. But when I read that, that's what I think he's saying. He takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz. And he says, I deserve to lose this. So would you take it instead? Will you redeem me and my family so that my history might live on. My family name might not be the one known as the sandalous one. Would you do this, Boaz, for me instead? Would you take my place? So Boaz's great act doesn't just redeem his own personal family's past, but it redeems another family's future. Boaz's act doesn't just justify and redeem his family's past, but another family's future. Because Ruth is a story that redeems history. It's a story that redeems hurts and pains and past and circumstances and names. And I wonder, I wonder if the storyteller starts with the first line of the book, in the time of the judges, and everybody would have known what that meant. In the time of massive upheaval and chaos, when no one knew what was coming next. Let me tell you a story about two people who'd practiced of divine grace and generosity and truth and love. And that actually is how history turns. That's how the whole thing works. And then the storyteller ends with this last line, Boaz, father of Obed. Obed, father of Jesse. And Jesse, father of of King David. And we find that this average, normal couple turn out to be the redeemers of the lineage of the great King David who points us to the way of the ultimate king. Because Ruth reminds us that in the days of the judges, a king is coming. Because friends, our world can feel volatile and chaotic and violent. Our world can feel like everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And what are we to do as we wait for our king to come? What do we do in the in-between? We look to Ruth and Boaz as our example of a redemptive way to live life. How can I? We begin to ask questions of ourselves as we read this book and as the book begins to read us. 
and to ask questions about what does it mean? How do we, as followers of God, that honor God, that want to live for God, that, that, are, that are disciples of Christ, how do we live in the in-between? And what we find is the same things. How can I redeem somebody else's name? How can I practice chesed, kindness, sacrificial kindness in the details of my life? Where in my life can I lift up, make known, empower, highlight, honor somebody else at the expense of my own? At the expense of my own name and the expense of my own recognition. Where can I lift somebody else up so that their name might be known? And how can I redeem someone's hurts? Who in my life is hurting? Who can I come around and walk through a difficult journey with? Have you ever gone through a real deep pain or hurt and somebody came and just was with you? And they didn't even need to say anything. They didn't even need to do anything. It was just their presence made all the difference in the world. Somebody came home with you in the midst of your bitterness when you felt like your life was empty. Somebody was standing right next to you. Where can I be that for someone else? How can I redeem someone else's circumstances? How can I be generous in order to redeem somebody else's circumstances? Where do I have plenty in a place where somebody else has need? And how can I redeem history? What are my own tendencies and shortfalls and pitfalls and addictions and idols of my family that I can set out to end in this generation? And who can I work with to help restore their history? Because as we live in the days of the judges, we look to Ruth and Boaz to give us examples of redemptive ways to live in between, in the, in the judges and the kings. But we also look to the one who redeems it all because in the days of the judges, we all know a king is coming. And our king declares this, I, Jesus, have set my angel to give you this testimony for the churches, that's you, that I am the root and offspring of King David and the bright and morning star. You see, friends, Jesus redeems our names. Just like Naomi, our names could easily have been blotted out of the universe. We are insignificant. And yet, Jesus says, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name of the person from my book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. God restores at his expense. Make sure that your name isn't blotted. And Jesus redeems our hurts. When we're on a journey of hurt and pain and difficulty, it can feel like the words of Naomi, that you are full and you've come back empty. But someone is always standing right next to you. Somebody comes home with you. And so it is declared in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for us in times of need. 
And Jesus redeems our circumstances. Because when we're generous with others, we are pointing to the one who was generous to us, not just in the circumstances, but with our very lives. And it was declared in Titus. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And Jesus redeems our history because we are the sandalous ones. We're the ones that unwilling to lose our estate for the name of another. And so the one steps in and says, I will lose it all so that your name might not be blotted out. We are the sandalous ones. We deserve to be spat upon, but someone took it for us. And it declares in Matthew, what is your judgment as they look at Jesus on the night in which he would be dead, that he would die? And they answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. Jesus redeems us. He redeems our hurts and circumstances and history and name. Because in the days of the judges, friends, a king is coming. And that's good news. That is good news. And what we do here at the table, and I'd like to call our communion ushers up now. What we do at the table is we remember this sacred thing. We remember this sacred truth, friends, that a king is coming. Because we live in the days of the judges, friends. We live in the days of the in-between. And as we wrestle and we try to live and we look at Ruth and Boaz, when we look at their lives and how they were redeeming names and histories and circumstances and pain, and we try to live into that redemptive way of life, we rest with the fact that one day Jesus will redeem it all. And we get to be part of that. We get to be players in this grand narrative. But for now, in the in-between, we remember that Jesus is coming. On the night in which he was betrayed, he had this supper. And he even said, I will not drink of this again until I come back. Until it is renewed in the kingdom of heaven. And so, while we remember the sacrifice, we also remember that this is actually the table of celebration when we feast anew with Christ one day. When every name is redeemed. And every circumstance is redeemed. And every hurt is redeemed. And every history is redeemed. And so let's do that now with the tops of the table. Let's, let's pray, God. We thank you for this time. We thank you that we get to be part of your story. We get to join you as you are continuously redeeming names and histories and pains and circumstances. And so as we come now, Lord, let us, let us take it with reverence, knowing that you lost your name for our sake, that you took the sandal that we deserve to lose, that you took the spit on your face that, that was ours to receive and paid the price for it. But Lord, we also come in celebration because you're coming back. The king is coming. And so we eat this with celebration. 
that you'll put it all right. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, first Jesus took the bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, all of you. This is my body that was broken for you. body of Christ broken for you. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave it to his disciples and said, drink, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you. I'd like to call our ushers and the band up now at this point. If there is uh, something that resonated with you this morning, something that uh, uh, we could be in prayer for you about, uh, just grab one of those connection cards. You can see that in your front pew in front of you. We'd love to continue the conversation on about this or anything in this book of Ruth. Again, if you want to continue studying, we have a study up on that uh, on our website. You can go deeper into all of these themes uh, as well. Let's pray as we uh, take up our offering this morning. Thank you, God, that we get to respond in this way, Lord. We get to respond at the table and we get to respond uh, by our giving, by our generosity, God, that points back to the one who is ultimately generous to us. God, so this is just another form of our worship as we live into the lives of of Boaz and we give, um, even though we don't have to, as a way to live redemptively now as we point to the one who will redeem it all. So we thank you and we praise you for this time. In your name I pray, amen.